So we have been in this sermon series called Living and Loving Together, looking at the whole notion of how to build relationships, what are the principles, what are the ideas behind it, and what are some practical things we can do to just continue building great relationships. And so, without further ado, here's Caroline Park. Good morning, Caroline. Good morning. Good to see you all. Thank you. <laughs> so we are in this series called Living and Loving Together. And I loved uh, Brian's um, announcement and the what we can participate in as actually very fitting to the series that we're on, um, Living and Loving Together. Because as the first se- uh, series of the year, we hope to invest in having meaningful and life-giving relationships and learn to increase our capacity to love. So two weeks ago, to kick off the series, I talked about the joy of connection. Um, the, through the story of the twin brothers in the Bible, Jacob and Esau, we saw that when the two brothers with their own separate realities all their lives growing up, um, there's a illustration for this. Yes. Um, when they reached out and stepped closer to each other and made the genuine connection um, and saw each other. And the heaven then opened up and they were able to see the face of God, God's reality. And receive joy and healing that flowed into them from heaven. The connection and love between them transformed their lives, and they became different people. Loving and receiving love from others is how we experience God, experience healing and restoration, and that is why it is the part of the greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Today, I want to build on that and talk a little bit more about the power of connection between people. Because let's look at this drawing a little bit. You see that, you know, the blue part is heaven coming in, right? (laughs) Um, Because what we're saying is that when two people meet and connect with love, however you know, long their relationships have been, whether they're strangers, whether they're somebody on the street that you meet or somebody you've been in, in relationship with all your life. When um, that connection with love happens, they are touched by heaven and the power of heaven. Connection itself has the power to bring joy of heaven into us make our lives better, transform our hearts and minds in however small degrees. Connections are not just conduits to deliver other kinds of help, like solutions to their problems or advice or connections or resources, which are all great, but they also have power in and of themselves. This might sound obvious, but is quite countercultural because we're so often taught to think that we connect and network with people 
so we can influence them in some ways. So we can deliver that one piece of advice or we can get them to buy something or listen to our ideas, um, change their lifestyle or, or to convert even in religious settings. And we, we sometimes think of that as connection and love and what that looks like. But if we really believed that connection creates heaven, then that means the connection itself is also valuable and eternally meaningful with that strength attached. Practical help is necessary and valuable, but often our presence is the best gift we have to offer to people. Just being there for the other with our non-judgmental presence and empathy is the most powerful way to help. Listening to understand and see the person true is healing and transformative. Not listening so that we can come up with the fix, solve their problems, or change their attitudes. This is true in all our relationships, especially our relationships with peers and partners and other grown-ups, but also in our relationships uh, with people that we care for, like our children. There is a story in the Bible that um, describes an unusual relationship that might speak into this. It's the story of Ruth. Well, you might have noticed that I'm always bringing up some stories. When it, it is true that I love good stories and how they shed light into truth in beautiful ways. That's how I, um, that's why I love the Bible. But it is also because I am thinking about children and because that they understand the world through stories. You may know that when I plan the content here, on Sunday mornings for the 13th floor, I also plan and write curriculums for the kids and youth downstairs somewhere, hanging out there, and how we can communicate the same topics that we're talking about here. So the story of Ruth I'm sharing is also being shared with the children and youth today as they talk about having rich relationships. So you guys, parents can... Uh, go home and talk to your kids about it. So, the book of Ruth. It is one of the only stories that I could think of in the Bible about two women's close relationship. As I have said before, there aren't many lead characters that are women in the Bible. And even those few women who have prominent storylines in the Bible, their friendships or relationships with other women are rarely described or even mentioned. There are sometimes relationships about jealousies and rivalry. Um, Those are mentioned sometimes, but it's never described as a full three-dimensional relationship. But the book of Ruth is about two women who love each other. One is a generation older than the other. One is a Jew and the other a Gentile, no less. The book is radical in that the story puts Ruth, a Gentile woman, right in the genealogy of King David and Jesus. 
even as other parts of the Bible condemn interracial marriages. It's a short book, only four chapters long. And it is set in the time of judges in Israel. So it was after they entered the promised land and before they had kings. There was a severe famine. Let me set up the story for you. There was a severe famine in the land. So a couple from Bethlehem, where Jesus was born later, moved to the country of Moab outside of um, Israel, so the Gentile land. And they settled there um, and lived there for a while. They moved there with their two sons. So the whole family moved. Then the husband died, um, leaving the wife, Naomi, with two sons. They grow up and they marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. But then about 10 years later, both sons of Naomi die too, leaving the three women without husbands or children. Then Naomi hears that the famine has ended and the things have turned around in Israel. So Naomi and her two daughters-in-law get ready to leave Moab to travel to Naomi's homeland. We won't be able to look at the whole story today, but we'll read from the first chapter that gives us the glimpses into their relationships. So from Ruth 1, but on the way, as they were traveling back to Israel, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's homes and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again, they wept together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So that's how um, the book starts. It gets better from here. It's kind of a sad... <laughs> um, because Naomi has gone through a lot of tragedies. There is a national tragedy, which is the famine, which forced her and her family to become refugees in the foreign land and to losing her husband 
and then 10 years later, losing her both sons. And in this culture, women, uh, women's livelihood depended on the men that they lived with, their husbands, their fathers, their sons. So she is in a pretty dire situation. She has no way to support herself. She has no future since uh, she, there was no real hope for having a husband again and therefore children. She feels that God turned against her and that her life has turned very bitter. She said, things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. There's a scene actually where she goes back to her homeland and people are good, uh, happy to see her again. And she said, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. Call me Mara because my life have turned very bitter. Mara means uh, bitter. She's bitter and hopeless. And she has no means to support her daughters-in-law either. No way to give them any future she doesn't want to take them away from their homeland to Israel where there will, be, there will be foreigners and discriminated against. So she's trying to send them back to their mother's houses. There's definitely a hint of self-pity from her too. God has raised his fist against me. I am a cursed woman with no hope. Why would you want to stay with me is kind of what she's saying. And one daughter-in-law goes back, but Ruth, for some reason, refuses. Now, I have heard uh, and read many commentaries uh, saying how this shows Ruth is noble and loyal, that Ruth stayed with Naomi because it was the right thing to do and that she was a woman of virtue, perhaps. I mean, how will we know? <laughs> To me, that's not as convincing of a reason as some others that I could think of. Perhaps she didn't want to go back to her parents' house for whatever reason. Maybe it was not a happy place for her. Maybe as they lived together for 10 years, um, Ruth, have gone through, uh, Ruth and Naomi have gone through tragedies together. They have really bonded. But whatever the reasons may be, probably more than one reason there, it is clear that Ruth has come to really love Naomi. She says, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Does that sound like it's coming from a sense of duty or faith in God? Sometimes some commentary says, because it doesn't, it's not a faith in Naomi's God she, that she doesn't know. It, to me, it seems like it's the expression of love for Naomi. She wants to be with her. A genuine bonding between them. And even as Naomi expresses strong emotions, like hopelessness, self-pity, bitterness. Ruth doesn't try to object, which we know is very hard. Nor does she try to fix the situations or give a pep talk. Ruth doesn't say, oh, it's not so bad. Count the blessings. Or say, God will fix everything for us. 
She doesn't offer up solutions to Naomi's problems, what she can do differently or better. She doesn't have any solutions. She can't provide any practical fixes. But she offers her presence. She says, I love you. I want to be with you. And I will always be here for you no matter what. And this is the beginning of their story of healing and redemption, restoration. The rest of the book of Ruth, which I encourage you to read, it's a short read. It tells the story of how hope and future come back into Naomi and Ruth's lives. They experienced joy of heaven again, and it was only because they stayed together, because they loved each other. We often strive to be of use to people um, that we are in relationships with. And of course, that's a good thing. But fixating on solutions can create bad habits in us and sometimes hurt our connections to people. We often have a hard time listening to unhappiness or stresses, frustration from, pe from people that we love because it pains us to see them in pain. And we fear what that might say about us who are in relationship with them, who can't fix them. We fear that their unhappiness might spread into other parts of our lives. But if it is really true that connections create openings to heaven, which I believe, the best gift we can offer to someone is our presence, our understanding. Instead of rushing into solutions and missing out on the opportunity to see them and be there with them, as they face challenges in their lives. I've asked Kevin to share his story today. Um, I feel like the story really captures the power of our presence. So let me invite Kevin up. Hi, I'm the other Kevin. Um, I help out with uh, the music of the pre-K, have you seen me, in the nursery, and uh, I also work for the church. Today I was asked to share about the time when my father passed away. It's probably 10 years ago, around this time in January, that my father was diagnosed with a cancerous tumor in his right lung. It was about this big. After the diagnosis, it was the first time in a long time that my parents and my two brothers sat down for a meal together, just the five of us. We discussed treatment options, outcomes, you know, the usual stuff people talk about after such a diagnosis. After a course of action was decided upon, there was a flurry of activity to get things done, to make sure that it was the best treatment possible, um, you know, looking for answers and giving answers. Now let me fast forward to a few months later when the inevitable happened. In the middle of July of that year, my father was admitted to the ICU because he was not responding to the treatment and he had a heart attack. What was there left to do? In some strange way, 
I felt that everyone was looking to me for the answer to deal with this. I wasn't the oldest child. I'm, I'm the middle child. But I do have a PhD in biochemistry that focused on infectious diseases. And most cancers are similar in the proliferation pro progression. That's about as technical I'm going to get right now. <laughs> if anyone was going to have something to say or to find a way out, it was going to be me. But I didn't, and I couldn't make anything better. At the time, I was a partner in a small technology firm, and they gave me as much time as I needed to deal with this situation. And my brothers were partners in the law firms that they were at, and they were able to take as much time as they needed as well. So we had a lot of time and all kinds of resources in our fingertips, but what could we do? So for the following, in the last two, week of my two weeks of my father's life, my brothers and I sat in the ICU with my father and my mother, taking turns at different times with them. Most of the time silently, except when my mother prayed. There was nothing that I could do to make the cancer go away. And there was nothing for my father to do to make things better for us. Even though he made every effort to indicate that the only person he wanted there was my mother, and that the rest of us should attend to our work and our own families. We could have left, but let's just say that we chose to disobey that specific request from my father. For two weeks, we sat with him, sometimes staying overnight in the hospital. There was nothing for us to do at the hospital. Certainly, I wasn't spending time in their research lab looking for some undiscovered cure for cancer. You know, like how it happens in the movies? where I would run in and inject something in the bag, and then he would just get up and walk out. No, we just sat there in the room, looking out the window, watching the boats go by. On the morning of August 1st, my younger brother, who had stayed overnight at the hospital, called to tell me that father was fading, and I should escort my mother to the hospital. We walked in, sat silently for those last few minutes together. Thanks, Kevin. So as I'm listening to Kevin's story, I am almost I can almost sense the peace and the comfort their presence must have provided for his father, father, and for one another. And Kevin's father, I see that was a rich man to have such family. And even when we have no way to help, we want to be able to offer this kind of peace of heaven to others in our lives, don't we? Not just people who are fading away, people who are here right now with us. One of the most powerful tools of being there for someone is listening. Listening to understand listening with our full presence. So I'm going to invite Sarah, who is trained in spiritual direction, and she's going to come and share hows of this type of um, listening. So I think we, I'm hoping it's not just me, but that we all agree that Listening can sometimes be a challenge. I know it can be for me because I'm easily distracted. 
So if I'm in a busy room and someone starts talking to me, it's very hard to tune out everything else and zone in only on what someone's telling me. And that has led to embarrassing moments. I remember I was at a conference, and after the morning session, I turned to the person next to me, and we were having a conversation, and they were telling me a little bit about their life, and things were going well, until someone walked by with a tray of food, and they started setting up lunch just a few feet away from me. And all of a sudden, all I could think about was, do they have vegetarian options in was I supposed to RSVP for that lunch? Is it? Are they setting it up over there? Yeah. Okay. Well, I need to. And then I started making these plans. And then I noticed the person I was talking to stopped speaking. And they were looking at me smiling. Like they had just asked me a question. And I knew there was no way I could fake it. That they were going to know that I had not been listening to them. So I think at some point we have all been there. And I know that most people that I talk to, and myself included, is we want to be good listeners. So back when I started studying spiritual direction, I was so excited by the material that I was being exposed to because spiritual direction revolves around the practice of really listening. So it was during my time at General Seminary where I began a journey of how to provide a space where people feel listened to and seen. So now my bookcase at work is filled with all these juicy books like Sacred Listening, The Art of Sacred Listening, The Art of Christian Listening, Holy Listening. (laughs) The titles go on and on. Now, by the way, if you would like to try spiritual direction, something that I offer during the week before I move on, I wanted to let you know there's brochures back at the welcome counter that tell you everything you'd need to know about that, okay? So today I'd like to just mention three principles that are fundamental in listening. Some you may already be familiar with and using all the time. Others might be something that would be helpful, and you'd give them a try. So the first principle kind of harkens back to what Kevin did. Don't just do something. Sit there. Our job isn't to fix, come up with an answer. It's to listen and be present. When we want to listen... In order to develop relationships, our job is to sit and listen in order to better understand. Another principle, listen with your ears, eyes, and your mouth. Now, I think we know about listening with our ears and kind of tuning in the person's voice and trying to turn out the other static But we also listen with our eyes. And that's because it's very normal when people share. We look up at the ceiling. We look down at the floor. We look out the window. We look at our hands. And then we always look back at the person 
to see if they're listening to us. And if they're not looking at us, we don't think they're listening, right? It's just human nature. So we listen with our eyes. Our eyes tell the person, I'm here for you and I'm listening. And our eyes also help us listen and understand more fully because that's how we notice body posture, nervousness, anguish on the face, happiness. We listen with our eyes and that helps us to better understand. Now, we also listen with our mouth. If we just stare blankly and silently at someone as they pour out their heart to us, they will think we're thinking something else in our mind. The lights are on, but no one's home. So that's when we interject, huh, wow, really? You know, whatever comes to mind as you're listening. Now, this does two things. It helps the listener stay engaged because you're participating in the conversation. And it also helps the person who's talking know they get it. They're with me as I describe this. When we listen with our mouth, we also ask questions so that we understand more fully. Wow. Now, so when you said this, did you mean that blah, 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 blah? And they either correct you and say, oh, no, no, I meant I was really nervous. Or, yeah, yeah, you're right. Or maybe we listen by asking a question. Wow, what happened next? Those are ways that we engage in the listening process. And the speaker feels listened to and understood. Now, there's one final principle I want to mention, and that is thoughts race, words walk. When someone is speaking, it takes a while for them to form the words and for them to come out of the mouth. While we're listening, our mind is racing. We can think so much faster than someone can talk. So as a result, they're just halfway into what they're going to say, and we think we know what they're going to say, and we know where they're going, and we have a response. Because our mind works faster than someone's mouth. So here's what happens a lot of time. Our mind is racing, and someone seems to be talking so Slowly, that we want to rush them to the point. Cut to the chase. Get to the bottom line. Now, that's good if the point of our conversation is only to get information. And there are times when that's the goal. You just need information. But if you're listening in order to connect, the person's processing is just as important as the point. So don't rush them to the final conclusion or what you think might be the final conclusion. That's how people feel valued in a conversation that you care about their process, not just their point. 
So those are three fundamentals, three principles that can really help us up our listening game and help us to listen in order to understand the kind of listening that makes relationships richer and more satisfying. And I love this idea that Caroline mentioned that it is in the connection itself that is valuable and eternally meaningful. So I pray that this week, as we move in to this kind of listening, we experience the joy of heaven inside us, making our lives better, making other people's lives better, and transforming hearts and minds. Amen. So there are your three principles for listening to understand. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us in this, that we would have an opportunity today to put this into practice so that it would get ingrained in us and become a part of the way that we interact with the people around us that we would feel your presence with us, encouraging us and helping us, and that a bit of heaven would come into our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.